We're gonna be alright I wanna see you fly Come on, let's go Hey, and welcome back to the Soul Force Podcast. Go with grace, responding to white Christian supremacy with resistance and resilience. Here we ask, what is white Christian supremacy and how does it show up in our daily lives? I'm your host, Grace Nichols. This week, I'm in conversation with two of my dear friends and fellow adoptees, Juliana Finch and Amy Dalton. All of us share our personal experiences and the impact of adoption on our lives. Juliana is a musician, writer, and religious studies student at UNC Greensboro. Aimi is a spiritual practitioner and a Kali practitioner. Kali is a Filipino martial art that I'm also learning. We have a great conversation about Jesus and Moses as adoptees and how the Bible has also been wielded to support the adoption industry. Aimi and Juliana were also voice actors in an audio fiction piece I wrote about my adoption experience called Crocodile Twins. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can have a listen, along with a few other adoptee resources. We start our conversation discussing coming out of the fog, an expression used in adoptee communities to describe an individual's journey of meaning-making and processing their adoption. This generally occurs when adoptees reach adulthood and are given the space and tools to be honest about their experiences. While difficult and triggering, side note, Please take care of yourself as you listen to this episode. This offering is rich with examples of transformation, possibility, and grace. We end our conversation with what has felt healing and supportive for us and how we envision better systems of care for adoptees. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Dalton and Juliana Finch. So in adoption communities, adoptee communities specifically, there's this term called the fog and coming out of the fog. How would you describe that? I mean, I almost would describe it as a spiritual awakening. And it feels like that, like you start seeing truths, you can't unsee. And then there's all these shadows that come up. And they're like, you know, integrate me. (laughs) So Mm. for me, the fog was just realizing that my adoption is trauma, period. I was taught that I didn't know because I was young and I didn't cry when I left. And so I internalized that and I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I became a mom. And after I gave birth to my son, I was I was messed up. I felt so much love for my son. And so I had to wrestle with the truth and I would see more shapes and more truths, you know, and then, and realize like maybe something I thought was a tree in the fog is not a tree, you know, something like that. What about you, Jules? Yeah, I think of it as like the reality behind the fairy tale version, because I also had this, you know, really great loving household that I grew up in. And my adoption was never hidden from me. And in fact, it was kind of a fairy tale in our family. Like the story of my birth, you know, the story of how I came into the family was told to me in such a like magical way that I grew up like 
thrilled to be adopted. But I think for me, I started to come out of it when I went with a friend of a family to a support group that was a triad support group. So it had birth parents and adoptive parents and adoptees all in the same support group. And that was the first time I actually met a birth mother and hearing her story and hearing her talk about how she thinks about her child every day. And she wonders, especially like Mother's Day and on their birthday, and like she hasn't forgotten them, you know, and I think that kind of triggered this like, oh, like it's also tough for that person. Right. I think that is an important part of adoptee movements at this time and adult adoptees speaking up for themselves. That part of there were things that were magical or good. No one is necessarily denying those things, but what has been denied us are the other aspects, the anger and the deception. The narratives that dominate adoption stories just don't make space for those things. And when we are like, but it kind of hurts that I was given up or that People didn't tell me this part about me my whole life. And then people kind of want to shut us down mm -hmm. uh, for saying that something hurts. It's a real difficult dynamic to be in. And so that feels like the challenge uh, for adoptees everywhere is to kind of recognize our life circumstances and then find and create the space where we can be honest about what happened and what was the impact of our adoptions on our lives. So I feel like for me, coming out of the fog was like questioning everything that I'd ever been told that I thought was true. So I mean, I are transracial adoptees from the Philippines. And one of the main narratives fed to a lot of transracial adoptees is that we come from these impoverished third world countries where our birth parents could not take care of us, or we would have had these terrible lives in our countries of origin. And in that sense, it, it always feels like people who are in difficult situations where they might not be able to provide care for a baby are punished. And the adoption narrative is like, well, instead of giving support to those birth families, they take the baby away not all adoptees have this opportunity, but I know my birth family and I know that if they'd had some more support that like I wouldn't have been given up for adoption. So coming out of the fog is sort of just recognizing all of those things mm -hmm. uh, for me. When you were speaking, I was remembering that a big part of coming out of the fog for me was recognizing the injustice, the systemic injustice that yeah, my, my birth mom wasn't able to provide for me. And there was a bunch of shame. I was adopted from the Philippines. And because we were colonized under America and they had rewritten our history books to kind of make them as the saviors, right? As the good guys. And that the ideal is America. You want to go to America. So my dad is white, my adoptive dad is white, and my adoptive mom is actually biologically my aunt. So technically, I'm still in the family, but I was taken away. And so, you know, there's that narrative where, so my birth mom couldn't take care of me. And then here comes 
my white father like, oh, well, we'll we'll take her to America. Right. So it seems like this big opportunity, which I'm not saying it was was bad. And I'm also saying that if there wasn't this idea of America being so great, would that have been a thing? Right. And then growing up in the evangelical church, I grew up with this narrative that adoption is what God wants you to do. Like adopt all the children of the world that are orphans, like take care of the widows and the orphans. And so I grew up thinking, wow, I am, I am such a example of, I don't know, this ideal. And so when all of those things, when I started coming out of the fog and realizing those things weren't necessarily true, it was just like, wow, these big giant systemic monsters that I felt like had me like bound up for most of my life, so. I think the words to me that really connect to Christian supremacy in particular are these notions of saved. Um, I think lots of adoptees internalize that message that we were saved and that also prevents us from speaking out and that we lucky and lucky um the chosen ones um and then therefore we should be grateful for these amazing opportunities particularly if it is a dynamic like that where we were brought to the united states and jules did you have some thoughts on that yeah for sure this idea of like being a savior is so interesting to me because i was born in the early 80s And as I mentioned earlier, it was right coming out of that time where if people were adopted, it was supposed to be hidden. And so a lot of white families were interested in white babies exclusively. And like, we want a white baby who is also gonna be blonde or brown haired or like who could look like us in family photos. And then this narrative shifted to, and I'm sure there was big evangelical influence in this and Catholic influence to like, go adopt all the brown babies who need homes who are all over. And then it was like trendy to have a transracial adoptee. But yeah, this idea that like it's it's a white Christian's responsibility to go throughout the world and take all their babies. I think also a lot about like the Indian schools in the United States and, and Canada, where First Nations and indigenous children were taken from their culture by force and made to be white. <laughs> Like, we want you to have whiter haircuts. You can't speak your language. You know, this is the reason we've lost so many indigenous languages and our, a lot of them are under threat because the kids didn't grow up knowing their own languages, you know? And this idea that, like, you have to forcibly assimilate cultures. And one of the ways to do that is to take their children. Mm-hmm. And obviously it sounds much more violent when we phrase it that way, and it's not the experience of a lot of adoptive parents that they think they're being violent, but it's because they've bought into this like generations of ideas that they're doing the right thing because they've been told they're doing the right thing for years and years and years. Um, and it's, it's really damaging. I think, I think also a lot of some of the problem with the broader narrative around adoption is that we start the stories, adoption stories start with, being found and being brought in to a family and they should start with the loss, with everyone's loss. I think if we could acknowledge that pain and the loss, that that's where it starts. It doesn't start when you get found. Um, that it would be easier for everybody to just talk about like, 
yeah, this is how this happened. And now you're with us. And this, you know, but we can acknowledge that it starts with loss. Yeah, that was one of the major, major shockers when I came out of the fog was the grief that rose up. And, you know, I know I am fortunate to be connected somehow to my birth family. Um, So I think that's why I stayed in the fog for so long as well. I was like, well, I met my mom once, you know, so I'm fine. It's fine. And then realizing the deep, deep, deep loss of my of my birth mom and what I lost, the deep, deep loss that I have and just the grief and the sadness, like years, like I wasn't I was 30 when I had my when I had my son. And so all of this stuff like rose to the surface. And I was like, wow, no wonder I struggled with depression in my life. Wow, this makes so much sense. No wonder I've always felt sad and nostalgic. Hmm. I felt nostalgic all my life. And I just thought I was just melancholy or that's my personality. Well, no, actually, (laughs) turns out I am really actually missing something. (laughs) I didn't realize until I would say a few years ago how damaging this idea that the gratitude is this idea that like and I don't know about y'all but I also had this notion when I was little that I have to like be exceptional I have to earn my place in my family so I have to do things that are exceptional and I have to work really hard and that nobody told me but I just internalized Mm -hmm. well you know you were given up once so you better like keep it in line so that they want to keep you you know yeah, if adoption is considered wonderful and great and family making, then it's really just the whiny adoptees who are ungrateful causing trouble versus the systemic issue and adoption as as a harmful thing, as oftentimes an extension of colonization, an extension of these evangelical efforts to save people. And I think we just, it's 2022, y'all. Like, there's no time to not be honest about these things. Like, we can't carry uh, this generational mentality that certain people need to be saved. Through that mentality, lots more people are actually harmed rather than, than helped or healed. Like, there's so many other ways to support communities other than taking their babies away. Yeah, and the classism inherent in that, too, mm-hmm. of like, you know, the idea that like poor people can't raise happy babies. Obviously, most people who can afford to adopt are either well off or at least middle class and up, you know. And so there's also this notion of like, well, you could have grown up poor. Like, oh, my God, would you have wanted to grow up poor? Like, sure. <laughs> like, is that the worst thing someone can be? Or like I was saying earlier, you can't imagine alternatives like or you could take care of poor people. Yeah, I actually take care of poor people. If you cared about me so much, why couldn't you have just sent all that money (laughs) to my birth mom or for my schooling or, you know, Mm -hmm. what is this possession that is happening? Right. And I think there's this idea that because you're 
if somebody is poor, that it's their fault and it is a character issue. Therefore, if you give them more money, it's not necessarily going to solve anything because it's mm-hmm. a character. The, the, these are things mm-hmm. that I, I'm saying that I have internalized, right? Yeah, that so. prosperity gospel thing mm-hmm. of like, if you're rich, it's because God favors you and God wants you to be rich. And they don't say the alternative, but there's a transverse to that. That's implied, which is if you're not rich, then you've done something and God doesn't want you to be rich. Um, and I think prosperity gospel is so damaging as a message. I, I think this just points to the fact that any sort of spiritual modality or faith or what have you belief system, if there is no shadow work, if there's no um, looking at where we can grow and get better, it it just goes sideways really quickly. Yeah, I think that's a lot of the discourse online when obviously like whenever we're talking about Roe v. Wade a lot in the news right now, clearly. And I think, I don't know if y'all had this experience, but I've had the experience in the past of people assuming I'm anti-abortion because I'm an adoptee. Right. And I've never been anti-abortion. I want people to have choices. I want people to have control and autonomy over their own bodies. And abortion and adoption are not really on the same continuum and people associate them all the time as though adoption is an alternative to abortion. And it's not, first of all, you know, if the only adoptions that happened were truly like, here is an orphan who has no one and needs a home. Like, I do think there's a place for adoption in the world. I think it's a thing that we've been doing as humans naturally for a long time. Like, oh, there's an abandoned child, truly abandoned. Like, they need someone to take care of them. Yeah, that would be great if that was the only time that happened. But it's an industry and like it has a supply and demand, you know, and people would say stuff like, aren't you glad you weren't aborted? <laughs> like, you, That could be anybody. That's not because I'm adopted. Anybody could have been aborted. Like, uh-huh. And also, I wouldn't be here to care about it. So when I was deep in my depression, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> take me out. <laughs> OK, I'm because like, it's such like the people who ask that question are actually not interested. Mm-hmm. in our actual responses. It's uh, objectifying. They're objectifying uh, us mm. in the sense that they are making us a tool for their conversation and not a person. Like anytime you're talking to somebody and you don't see a whole person, you're objectifying them in yeah. some way. And like, they want me to say, yeah, absolutely, abortion is wrong. I'm so glad I'm alive. Um, I am thrilled to be alive. I love it here. But <laughs> <Okay>. also... <laughs> I would have rather my birth mother have choice yeah, and and not be like, I know my birther, she just, she struggles so hard today with the difficult choice that she had to make, you know, and I would have much rather her not felt that shame and wait. Definitely. And you feel like I should be, be pro-life because I'm an adoptee. No, I had all my choices ripped away from me. My birth mother's choices were taken away, were were only one or the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't I want someone to have their own choice over their own body? That makes way more sense, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious because earlier you said you're also formally evangelical. Do you feel like those things were connected, like coming out of uh, your adoption fog and evangelical fog? What was that process like? 
Yeah, it was like pulling a thread on a sweater and then all of it just unravels. Like I pulled the thread of adoption and then that showed me systemic things, which showed me colonization, right? Which showed me like patriarchal systems, which showed me white supremacy. So all of those things are all together. So once I started pulling that thread of, hey, adoption is trauma and you have some trauma. And then seeing what the evangelical church, what part that played in my trauma and continued to play in my trauma. Right. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, are other things trauma? (laughs) Turns out they are. Mm, What part would you say did the evangelical church play in your trauma? I felt like I was lied to. Mm. Right. And so I was angry. And at the same time, I had to struggle with the fact that the people who told me lies, they were lied to. Right. Right. And so even in my healing journey and my processing the adoption, sometimes I felt like I couldn't be even fully angry because I'm like, oh, well, you know, they didn't know it's a systemic thing. I've gotten to the point now and I can just be angry. I'm just angry. If I want to be angry, I'm going to be angry. And like my, my adoptive parents only knew what they knew. They only knew what they were told. And I still get to be angry about it. Yeah, I feel that. I feel a deep compassion when you say that. I feel like I've always also felt self-conscious about my anger. And I'm finally getting to a place where it feels okay. You've been told certain things where you think you're doing a good thing. And so I'm not necessarily mad at that or you, but I also would like to be honest about my feelings and the impact of your actions that you, you didn't realize were hurtful. Yeah, exactly. And we can be mad at the industry and acknowledging it as an industry. When I look at social media where adoptee voices mm-hmm. are we're speaking to each other and using the word industry where I wasn't hearing that when I was growing up. And I think it's important Mm -hmm. for people to know that like, there aren't millions of babies looking for homes, which is the mythology, right? It's like, no, we're actually pressuring people into giving up children instead of giving them the resources to care for a child they might want to keep. And this is also why why adoption is not an alternative to abortion in that that one-to-one sense, because there's another option, which is not everybody who's having an adoption would have gotten an abortion. Lots of people who are giving their children up for adoption are doing so because they don't have the resources to take care of that child. Mm -hmm. And that might actually be a wanted child. And I think that's the thing that people don't want to look at is that a lot of adoptees were wanted children. And I think, you know, a lot of the adoption organizations are Christian. And then just how much it costs to adopt. And I'm just like, what? Mm. Wow. So, yeah. It's so hard to present and for people to digest, but adoption as another form of human trafficking because there was an exchange. There's a monetary exchange. And I know people are highly reluctant to that framing. And it's also, again, another element of honesty. So I've seen a, a lot of adoptees ask that question, you know, how much did I cost? And... When people think about it that way, it's like, oh yeah, this is this wasn't that fairy tale 
that's presented originally. Yeah, right. my my original birth certificate has my adoptive parents' names on it. Right. There's no record. I mean, we haven't touched on this yet, but there's also like we have no records if it's a private adoption. You know, mm. I only exist in the fiction is the only thing that exists according to the government. So, like there was no way for mm. me to have even found my birth parents without my adoptive parents giving me information that they had, which is how I ultimately was able to do that. But like, according to the government, we don't have a right to our own health records or biological records or, you know, any of that stuff. We don't have a right. Yeah, I think that a lot of people don't know that domestically, there are laws saying that adopted people can't access. Yeah information about themselves and just like the layers of fucked upness about that um is is truly wild um another parallel is name changes yeah the thing that was changed for me was my middle name and finally figuring out what my middle name was supposed to be and processing that as an adult i'm like wow, like it makes way more sense to who I am. So it's very interesting names. Names are very, very interesting. Yeah. I was born Grace and then it was changed to Tori. And um, when I was younger, I remember learning about my birth name, but not resonating with it because I thought it was too girly <laughs> which is funny now as a trans quote-unquote mask person and um the name Grace is like really important to me and I started going by Grace after I met my birth family mm. uh, for the first time at 16. I think they were willing to call me my adoptive name but similarly Grace just felt right and better in my body and it's just mm. Uh, really important to me that I, I have that name. I love that you both have had this like reclamation of your names. My name is the only name I've ever had because I was a baby and I was mm. adopted like a couple days old. So I didn't have any paperwork <laughs> yet. Um, but yeah, I love that. I love that's such a healing process. It sounds like, you know, literally reclaiming a lost part of yourself and like putting that piece back. I think another funny thing, another reclamation thing I've been thinking about is this like notion of chosen from an adoptee perspective feels powerful. I always feel just so proud of adoptees for being here. Um, I don't think that people really know the extent of healing work we have to do, I mm -hmm. think, to, to simply be here. And to have compassion and grace for the people in our lives who meant well, you know, but also sort of put us in these circumstances. So I often talk about, I really support adoptee anger. It makes sense for many of us to, to just be mad at the things that have happened to us. And I think sort of what I notice online in particular are just a lot of adoptees having a really, really hard time. Yeah. And I, I really want uh, something better for us. Mm. Do either of y'all have thoughts on that? Kind of what, what feels possible for adoptees moving forward? For me, it has been 
really getting in touch with my spiritual pre-colonial ancestral roots and doing ancestral healing and realizing that I have deep, deep roots that I belong to, right? Because as an adoptee, you can kind of feel like you're just floating, like you have no foundation whatsoever. The foundation that you have is iffy, um, but to know that there are ancestors who support me and who have been thinking of me and who, you know, continually guide me. Um, that has helped me a lot personally. So yeah, I uh, love that you talked about getting in touch with your like pre-colonial roots. I've sort of been on a, a journey of that as well, even as a white person, because my family is all like Northern, my birth family is all Northern European, um, you know, Scottish and, and, uh, from the Netherlands and stuff like that. And like just learning more about those cultures and, but also this notion that you can make your own family. And in a way you can also make your own ancestors where people that have been important to you and texts that have been important to you and figures that are important to you. Like I sort of feel like I adopt them as my ancestors. And those are the people and the beings that I call on when I need a little extra help. And interestingly, you know, I'm not, I'm not Christian anymore. I was raised Catholic. And since coming out of the fog, the Jesus story, especially his birth story, has been more accessible to me than I think it was when I was a child. Because I think of Jesus as an adoptee. And I think of Joseph as an adoptive father. And, like, and, and it changes the narrative for me. Oh, that story dang. becomes more special to me now. Yeah. You know? So going along that thread about Bible stories, you know, there's that story of Moses in the Mm -hmm. basket, right? And so as adoptees who grow up in the evangelical church, you're pointed to that story and you're like, see, adoption is good and puts you in places that God wants you to be, et cetera, et cetera. And while I know I am in the place that I'm supposed to be, once I started processing my adoption story, I was like, wait, wait a minute. His mom didn't want to let him go. Moses was wanted. Like, what about the the systemic injustice that caused her to put her baby in a basket in a river? Like, that's horrible. Like, they're only seeing the one part, right? And it's like, well, there's another thing that's happening. So... And Moses also is a transracial adoptee, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like growing up in Egyptian culture and he's a Hebrew, you know, and like he ends up being the leader of the Hebrew people. Right. And then when he he uh, killed that Egyptian for that was a hard choice for him. Right. It was like the people I grew up with or the people I belong to. Right. And then he had the, all this conflict and then he ran away. I'm like, now I understand why he ran away. There's this, it was this like a lot to process. Yeah. One of the things I love about my scholarship is that like learning more about the Hebrew Bible in a Jewish context rather than a Christian context. And one of the things is that like these figures in the Hebrew Bible are not necessarily meant to be examples in the sense that like exemplars, like people we are t- to be like, but rather they're like reflections of, of us going through our own, you know, stuff. And I, I was just reading something about the Moses story about his like intercultural stuff the other day. And like, I think he's also a really great example. If adoptees need to find some comfort in, in a biblical story, you know, there's one that's complicated. He's complicated. 
and he has complicated feelings about his own adoption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all this pressure for adoptees to be a certain way. But to me, that's what feels hopeful moving forward is, mm. is, is recognizing our own autonomy. We didn't have a lot of choice in our early lives. But at some point, all of us have to find that and reclaim that for ourselves. Yeah, and I think just being able to talk to other adoptees, which I've done so much more in the last few years than I have in my entire life right. before that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and to have that community building, I think, is really important because I do think a lot of adoptees feel isolated mm-hmm. inside their own experience because the outward projection is that you're supposed to be happy and grateful. And if that doesn't match what you feel, you know, there's social pressure to tam that down and just pretend everything's fine. Yeah, I'm, that is my hope with all of us speaking our truths and coming into our own sovereignty and autonomy is that we'll be able to create something different, right? So I don't think adoption is ever going to go away. It's going to still be a thing. And we can create systems that are healthier. I think that is the power of truth. That is the power of our voices to enact change. Like adoption just can't go on the way it has. Like it needs to change. I feel like what would also be hopeful is a general culture shift. So hopefully these changing perspectives around adoption are happening in tandem with political education broadly and uh, recognizing the roles of white supremacy, of Christian supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and all of us feeling more empowered to push back against those things. And I want to lift up uh, one of my favorite queer, trans, disabled adoptee writers, uh, Mia Mingus, And she talks about adoption abolition. The framing is like, yeah, adoption, I think, is going to happen. But maybe we need a reframing, which involves like community care. Uh And when we talk about adoption, abolition is actually targeting the circumstances under which adoption occurs. Mm -hmm. So it's like poverty, um, mental health crisis, uh, the patriarchy that creates abusive situations. So when we can work to heal those things, then adoption won't be necessary mm-hmm. as much. Yes. Yeah. Um, we are nearing our time to end our lovely conversation. I feel like we could keep talking for a very long time. <laughs> yes. I, always, I always love getting to talk with adoptees. It makes me feel great, too. Yeah, same. Well, this truly was lovely, and I am really, really genuinely grateful for y'all and all that you do in the world. So thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, same. All right. right. Bye, Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow Aimi at the Mayari Moon on Instagram. Juliana is Juliana Finch on Instagram and Patreon. Links in the show notes below. Go With Grace is written and produced by me. I also wrote the theme song. Additional music by Blue Sky Moon, Ketza, and Audio Rizzo. 
Be sure to check out all the other episodes on Spotify and Podbean. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you like what you hear. Also, please rate and review. It really helps new listeners find this podcast and we'd love to know what you think. You can also email me at grace at soulforce.org. We'd love to connect. Until next time, go with grace, my friends.